Hi friends, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at EV. I hope you're keeping well amidst the second lockdown. I'm looking forward to being able to gather together in one another's homes during level two, even if it is only up to a max of 10 people. But I am glad that you've tuned in today as we continue to take a look in this letter of Paul's to the Philippians. But let me pray that God's word would impact us today. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Whatever our weeks have entailed, we ask that you would help us to focus in on what it is you would have us hear as you continue to shape our minds and attitudes around your gospel message. We ask that you would keep growing us in maturity. For Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, most of you know I used to work on supply boats. Uh, I'll never forget this one trip that I did. It was a last-minute fill-in for someone. It was only supposed to be for a week, maybe two. I flew up to Singapore and joined the ship the next day. The off-swinging officer handed over to me, and we set sail to Indonesia and commenced the job. But one week quickly turned into two, and two weeks came and went, and there was still no sign of my relief. Back home, Christy and I had a wedding or something to attend a couple of weeks later, and at that point, I was pretty optimistic that I'd be back in time for it. Well... By week three, it started becoming clear that nothing was going to happen quickly. We were struggling to get food stores supplied to the ship. Uh, people were starting to get on each other's nerves. Expectations were not being met. And back home, Christy was definitely not impressed. As the timeline of when it would be paying off kept getting extended and extended. You know, this was supposed to be a short fill-in job. I'd be home in two weeks tops. But week four came and went. The captain had stopped talking to the second mate. Week five came, I missed the wedding back home. Week six, by this stage, my mind was firmly set on that first home-cooked meal. But I couldn't lose hope. I had to keep working until I got the call to head home. And so I was living day by day, week by week, with a very firm focus on that end prize. With a constant reminder from Christy back home, frustrated and disappointed. But what could I do? In total, it was nine weeks before I got off that tin can. Did the job safely, got home safely. I tell you, home had never felt nearer. Now, in his letter to the church in Philippi, Paul has been unpacking what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. A life that reflects transformed minds set on Christ. A life that results in changed actions by those found in Christ. It's that passionate, maturing pursuit of God's heavenly call upon believers. And as I've been thinking through this passage uh, this week, four little words continued to strike me. Four little words that might be the key to understanding this gospel mindset that Paul wants all Christians to have. Those four little words are found in verse 5. Take a look with me. The Lord is near. A short but confident affirmation about God's nearness. And I want to suggest to you that if you, if you pull this thread that the Lord is near, then the rest of the passage kind of comes with it. Because what we have before us in this section of the letter are seven encouragements that Paul delivers in quick succession. Seven encouragements that are actually written in a way that lack any grammatical connection. But think with me for a moment. Sitting just behind these exhortations is the backdrop of our heavenly heritage. Heaven where our citizenship lies. That place from where Lord Jesus Christ will return. Just three verses earlier, Paul's reminded us that our citizenship is in heaven. 
And we're eagerly waiting for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. To know Jesus' personal return may occur at any time is a powerful incentive, yeah? A powerful incentive for godly living and a right response to these surrounding commands. Now, throughout Philippians, Paul has been encouraging the believers to grow in maturity since they have been prepared for their heavenly dwelling. Starting in chapter 1, verse 6, he says this, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. A few verses later, in verse 9, he prays that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. In chapter 3, he says, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is saying that on that last day, we will be finally transformed and fit for eternity. The day of the Lord is the event that Paul states is near. Or as another Bible translation puts it, the Lord is at hand. And the Christian is one who lives in light of that return. Not thoughtlessly day by day, but with gospel intentionality, with a gospel mindset, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in us both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Now, you might be tuning in for the first time with us here at EV, and, and you may not know what I'm talking about when I say the gospel. <laughs> Elsewhere, Paul states it simply as Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. See, Jesus lived his life without sin, and he died on the cross in our place and was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and he ascended to heaven, and he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And it's from there that he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, if you don't yet trust in Jesus as Lord of your life, then I'm glad that you're tuning in. And my hope is that you'll start to see why it is that Christians can live with such a different mindset to the world around them. Because I want to show us how the reality of Jesus' return shapes our understanding when it comes to working alongside one another, when it comes to engaging the world around us, and when it comes to thinking and doing the right things. It's the mature response to this gospel reality that Paul has been unpacking for us. So, so come with me to chapter 4 verse 2 as we meet two fellow workers within the Philippian church who clearly have some sort of dispute. Two ladies who are in disagreement. Paul says this, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now Paul possibly met these two prominent women 12 years earlier when he planted the church. These women were fellow workers in the defense and establishment of the gospel in Philippi. They are part of this church that he holds so dear to his heart. And so the fact that Paul addresses them by name speaks to the seriousness of division within the church. Now, there has been much speculation about what it could have been, what, what could have been uh, that these ladies were disagreeing over. But look, whatever the precise issue was, it wasn't something small like a family feud. It wasn't just a, some sort of friendship saga. No, the disunity between these two prominent women was something to do with the church. And it was at risk of diminishing the very gospel that had called them together in the first place. And so Paul wants the gospel to apply in this very particular situation. Because these are his friends. He wants them to agree in the Lord. He wants them to think the same way. Now, 
Paul has already established this gospel mindset, this gospel thinking that brings great joy to him and and the whole church. So flick back with me to chapter 2, verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You see, from the generic sense of the word back in chapter 2 to its specific use here in chapter 4, Paul is bringing the gospel to bear on his beloved sisters at Philippi. That they may have the same love, be united in the same spirit, intent on one purpose, thinking the same way. Paul is urging them to work this out for the sake of the gospel. Some even suggest that this is the climax of this letter. Because reconciliation is the application of the gospel. And gospel reconciliation requires gospel thinking. See, when we agree on the gospel, there is no room for division. And the mark of maturity is what we do when we encounter disagreements together. Now, some of you uh, might be uh, conflict adverse. And so if a disagreement comes about, the the simple response is to to flee, to flight, uh, to, to maybe even leave church. But others of you will be uh, more of the fighting type. Uh, You love conflict. A bit of tension is good. It's healthy. Uh, And so you'll stick around, but you'll fight it out. And you'll fight tooth and nail. But you see, wherever there is infighting, wherever there is disunity within the church, Paul says that it detracts from the gospel. The very message that brings us together. So here at EV, we're a bunch of people who are convinced we're not perfect, but we're captivated by the one who is, Jesus. Now, we might get it wrong from time to time, but at its core, Christianity has some fundamental beliefs. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And so we would say that these gospel essentials, we are to have unity around. This is the gospel partnership that we share here at church. It's the gospel mindset that we must have around these essential Christian convictions. But I take it Paul here is not urging Euodia and Syntyche to agree on essential doctrines. Otherwise, he would simply rebuke the one who is wrong. No, the fact that he calls them both to think the same way is to see them not let such disagreement dissolve the unity and partnership they share as brothers and sisters in Christ. So whatever this disagreement is, Paul expects them to be able to continue to fellowship together, to continue to partner together, to continue to stand firm together, just as they've contended side by side, for their names are in the book of life. Verse 3, Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Notice here that reconciliation between Yodia and Syntyche is in the interest of the whole church. Paul asks a true partner to help them agree in the Lord. And so out of love for our brothers and sisters, we need to help mediate such disagreements so that they don't blow up. It should come as no surprise to us that conflict will come to fallen people in a fallen world. But the gospel gives hope amidst conflict. Because in Christ, 
there are no irreconcilable differences. For all differences will be resolved between brothers and sisters in Christ in heaven. Because they will be resolved there, we can have hope that they can be resolved here. Friends, the Lord is near. Do you need to apply the gospel and reconcile with someone here at church? I'm not saying you have to agree with everything someone says or thinks, but but are you able to move forward together as gospel partners? We're in the trenches together at war. We're, We're on the same team. And so reconciliation is working hard to be at peace with one another because of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. Or does your gospel mindset move you to help others to reconcile? You know, when that person comes and tells you what someone else did, do you encourage them to go to that person and have a loving chat with that mindset? Sometimes you might need to offer to go with them, but but don't go for them. (laughs) Paul urges Euodia and Syntyche to sort their stuff out. And so let me urge you today, if there is someone you're avoiding reconciliation with, please sort it out. Ask someone to come with you. Then get on with serving Jesus together. Friends, we don't have time to get distracted with self-focused disputes. Jesus' return is imminent and people need to hear the good news. And divisions amongst co-workers weakens that message and it robs us of gospel joy. Well, it's at this point in the letter that we start to wonder if Paul is just doing a bit of a brain dump. He's just jotting down bullet points. Because Paul is going to show us three attitudes that come with this gospel mindset. A gospel mindset with respect to the world. The first is an attitude of joy. Pick it up with me in verse 4. He says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Joy is is essential to the Christian life. God's people are both commanded to rejoice and characterized by rejoicing. So important is rejoicing that Paul here repeats it twice, right? (laughs) In fact, It's this theme of joy that bubbles to the top of this entire letter. Thirteen times Paul speaks of joy or rejoicing. It's indestructible joy. And joy is the right response in the receiver to the goodness of the giver. You see, the source of the Philippians' joy is being a part of God's good plan to bring the world back into right relationship with Him for His glory. And that's our source too. It's both an emotion and a mindset. It's the fruit of life in the Spirit, Galatians tells us, of a life that is hid with Christ. And our joy is based in the objective reality that Jesus has defeated death and will come again. The Lord is near. And so we can rejoice whatever the circumstance, because the Lord is near and heaven is our home. Well, the first attitude was joy. The second attitude of a Christian is graciousness. Verse 5, let your graciousness be known to everyone. Now, although the word could also be translated gentleness, I do like how the CSB has used graciousness here because I think it encapsulates something of that sense of showing grace to one another. Grace that's compassionate and robust. Grace that wins the man, not the argument. And notice here that such graciousness extends beyond the local church. It's to be shown to everyone, even those opponents Paul has been speaking of back in chapter 1. It's a gospel mindset that overflows to the world. See, the context that the Philippians find themselves in is being mistreated and tortured for the gospel. 
and yet they are to submit to injustice, disgrace and maltreatment without hatred, trusting God in spite of it all. And while such graciousness might be attractive to an outsider, it might also be the cause of ridicule. And so this is not a mission strategy, but a gospel mindset, knowing that the Lord is near. You know, the uh, philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche once said, I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. The mark of a mature Christian is one who conducts himself with graciousness to everyone. So how are you going at showing grace to those around you? Uh, To your workmates, your flatmates? Do, Do you find yourself always having to win the argument? To have the last say, to be right? Paul is urging us to swallow our pride and to be gracious. Rejoice always, be gracious to everyone. And the third attitude Paul speaks of is the absence of worry. Knowing something of their situation and the opponents that are pressing in against them, Paul tells them not to worry. Verse 6, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, let's be honest. There are lots of things that can cause us to worry in this world. Uh, You might be worried about the current state of COVID, uh, its resurgence in the community. Uh, Or perhaps things are financially tight at the moment, and that's causing you worry, anxiety. You might have even received a bad health report. In fact, just last week, we had a a bit of a health scare. We found out that Christy was pregnant, but that it was an ectopic pregnancy, uh, where the embryo is growing inside the fallopian tube. It wasn't at all what we were expecting, and, and rightly, we were a little worried. So she went to hospital. The doctors had to operate because the fallopian tube had ruptured, and Christy was bleeding internally. Uh, ended up removing the embryo and the, and the fallopian tube. But you know, throughout the whole experience, Christy was so reliant on God. And that's been a huge encouragement to me. Seeing this sort of gospel mindset at the forefront of her heart and mind, that even despite the pain and emotional toil, she could still trust God. When we're overwhelmed by anxiety and it causes distress, it affects our psychological and physical well-being. And Paul is saying, when you feel anxious, bring that to the one who is sovereignly in control. He wants us to depend on him, to trust him for our peace. Because the antidote to anxiety is prayer. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything that causes you to worry. For there is a connection between how much we worry and how little we pray. I've heard it said somewhere, the greater challenge is not unanswered prayer, but unspoken prayer. The greater problem is not that God is silent, but that we are. That is, in every situation where you feel yourself getting anxious, turn and pray to the one who hears your requests. Pray with thankful hearts, depending fully on the one who loves you and cares for you as his children. Paul is not saying that we won't experience anxiety, but he is saying that for the believer whose citizenship is in heaven, whose Lord is near, is there really anything worth worrying about? As Paul famously says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if we are to live, press on, keep trusting. Because when we thank God in all things, not for all things, we're declaring our dependence on him. When we thank God in all things, not for all things, we're declaring our dependence on Him.
And as a result of such prayer, we are assured of his peace. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You know, when you come across someone new, you meet them for the first time, maybe it's at a cafe, a work function, or even the bowls club. <laughs> they seem to have a graciousness about them. They don't seem to get overly anxious about much. In fact, they seem rather joyful, like all the time. <laughs> and you get to thinking, don't you? I just, I wonder, I wonder whether they might know this peace of God, this peace that defies comprehension, a peace beyond our imagination. And so you, you might go up to them and ask them, hey, you don't happen to be a Christian, do you? Because you sure look like one. <laughs> Friends, let's make sure that we're a prayerful people, depending on our God who is in control, and so control our emotions, being sure of our secure future. So because heaven is our home, mature Christians are to have a gospel mindset as they work alongside each other. They're, they're to have a gospel mindset when it comes to engaging the world around them. And lastly, with heaven as our home, we are witnesses of this gospel life. And in the way that we think, in the way that we act. Now, verses 8 and 9, Paul is very clear that right thinking is to result in right living. It's a little bit like riding a bike. They say, uh, wherever you look is where you'll go. So if you're riding your bike and you look over your shoulder, uh, you tend to veer to the left. <laughs> so too it is with a gospel mindset. Whatever you set your mind on, whatever things uh, you dwell on, are, are the things that we'll enact on. A gospel mindset is going to have us dwell on, meditate on. It's going to have us fill our minds with things that are true, things that are honorable things that are just and pure and lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Practice these things. So if we go back up to the top, we're to set our minds on truth, not lies. We need to think into what is true and rebuke what is not true. See, part of the mind of the mature believer is being able to spot lies and embrace truth instead of those lies. We're to set our minds on, on things that are true, but things that are honorable as well. Honorable as opposed to dishonorable. We're, we're to think about things that are right or just as opposed to unjust. Things that are, that are pure and wholesome. <laughs> you know, for some of you, you need to stop looking at inappropriate images. Unpure things that are filling your mind. Paul says we are to think on things that are lovely, that are commendable. Look, it's, it's not natural to do these things. It requires a different mindset. Paul puts it this way in Colossians. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And Paul doesn't just leave this in the abstract, does he? he? He reminds them of all that he has taught them and modeled to them. He says to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he urges them to do the same. Verse 9, do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul says, do these things. It takes practice. 
It's not natural to do the things in verse 8. Like I said, it, that's why the maturing believer must practice these things, to put them into action. I wonder, who have you got in your life that you're learning from? Or who are you leading, sharing your life with? Who are you opening the word with? As Lachlan said last week, you don't drift into Christian growth and maturity. You don't get there by not putting in any effort. You set your mind on the things of Christ. You model your life on godly witnesses. And you learn as you watch and you grow. Friends, the promise of God and the encouragement to us today is that we can do these things. We can set our minds on that eternal prize, heaven. The Lord is near. We're almost home. And because of that, we have great cause to dissolve the disputes that may happen amongst us, to, to rejoice always, to be gracious with everyone, to be anxious about nothing, <laughs> to hand our anxieties over to God in prayer. We have great cause to think about those things that are right, to put everything into practice. God is doing this in us by His Spirit as He prepares us for our heavenly home. The Lord is near. So let's live that way. Let's pray. God of peace, we thank you so much that you have made peace between us through the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he will one day come again. And as you continue to mature us and prepare us for our heavenly dwelling, may we be a people who are united in the gospel. Help us to rejoice in all circumstances, to be gracious to everyone, to not worry about anything. May we work hard at filling our minds, dwelling on those things that are true and honorable and pure. And would you by your spirit see us walk in a manner worthy of your gospel. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.